Amen. Go with me to Luke chapter 7. So today, uh, we, we've been focus, focusing on the strategy, pray, serve, give. God calls us to pray strategically. God calls us to serve intentionally. God calls us to give generously. And I've been parked on giving because I believe that God wants us to live lifestyles, of, of uh, generous lifestyles for the kingdom. And that's not just talking about finances. That's also talking about our life and our time and what we invest ourselves into. And today I also felt the Lord leading me to focus on just a portion of that, on one story. And I'm going to call it, uh, the, the, uh, as I look at it, we're going to talk about the alabaster story. The story where the woman anoints Jesus' feet with alabaster oil or perfume. All four Gospels tell us this story, and because it's told from four different people, they all give us a different nuance or a different detail that's very interesting. Now, as we look at those details, some scholars would say that the Gospel of John is actually recording a different story or a different time where Jesus' feet was anointed. I believe it's all the same story, uh, reflected of, of the same individual. However, that's not the main factor. Um, that's not the main issue. The main issue is the principle behind the story that we're going to read. I believe this portion of Scripture answers one important question, and that question is this. What does it look like when someone invests themselves into the kingdom of God? What does it look like when someone gives their lives for the sake of Jesus, for the kingdom of God? What happens when we give what he is worthy of? What happens when we give Jesus what he is worthy of? So as we look at this portion of Scripture, I believe that it answers that question. Before we dive into those verses, I want to remind you that Matthew 13, says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, what Jesus is saying, eternal life, and having a relationship with the Father, and the Father having a relationship with us, and knowing that we belong to the kingdom, that's comparative to someone, uh, to someone finding some great treasure that's so powerful, so awesome, so great, that they're willing to give up everything that they have for the treasure that they just found. Heard a story as I was preparing this message of a volunteer at a hospital, the Cancer Institute, uh, where there was this child that needed a blood transfusion and the only one that can uh, give the blood that she needed was her brother who was a five-year-old. The doctor was trying to explain to the five-year-old what's going to take place to see if the five-year-old was going to be okay with the situation. The five-year-old said yes. They hooked him up and uh, he be they begin the blood transfusion and it's, it was happening. The little boy looked at the doctor and said, well then do I start dying right away or when will I die? Because the boy in his mind basically had decided it's worth me giving my life for my sister. And I'm okay with it. Just tell me when I'll die. And I thought, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of total surrender. And as I looked at it, I said, you know, that's the kind of surrender God calls from his church. Church that says, God, I give you my life. I don't know where you're going to lead. I don't know what the future looks like, but I give it to you. Praise God that he gives life. So as we go to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we begin the story. It reads this way. What I'm going to do in order to help us understand what's happening contextually is I may pause in the middle of the text, 
explain a little bit and keep reading. Are you, you okay with that? Can we do that? Okay. Thank you for your word. Father God, anoint, Father God, this time. Let your Holy Spirit move in power. Change me. Change us. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting for Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Let's pause. Here is this Pharisee, a person who's a member of the religious institution of that time. He invites Jesus into his home to have dinner with him. And as he invites him, the Bible says that a woman finds out about this, and this woman is a sinner. Now, why in the world does the Scripture tell us that the woman is a sinner? It's not because she's a gossip. It's not because she told a white lie, as they call it, little lies. It's not because, you know, she falls short ever so often. It's because her livelihood is a livelihood of sin. More than likely, someone who lives in prostitution. And someone who is very well known within the community is someone who's living a lifestyle of sin. So, let's continue to read. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining, that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, she began to, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Let's pause there. We often have this picture of Jesus maybe sitting at a table <coughs> and we... We may think that the woman would be in front of him washing his feet. But the way that they would actually sit back in those days, because tables weren't made the ways that we have them, is possibly Jesus is sitting like this, with his feet behind him, reclining at the table. And this woman then comes from behind and begins to wash Jesus' feet. And it's very interesting what's happening here, because she enters into a very religious home, She knows that she's going to be judged. She knows that she's not welcomed. She does not care. She goes right to Jesus. She takes this expensive perfume. Another gospel would say that the perfume was worth 300 denarii. What does that mean? It means a year's wage. Imagine a year's salary worth perfume. That's serious. That 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 is some serious stuff. And in order for her to use this perfume, she would have to break the jar, which means that from the moment that jar's broken, it had to be spent. So to break that jar, she was fully committed to anoint the feet of Jesus, and then she does something else that's culturally unacceptable. She takes her hair down. As a woman, this is not acceptable in Jewish culture at the time, and she weeps and dries his feet with her hair which implies that her weeping was so strong. Can you imagine this scene? Here is this woman. She comes in. Everybody's looking at her. She kneels before Jesus. She begins to weep over his feet, breaks open a year's salary wage perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet, weeps over his feet, and dries them with her hair. That is extravagant, right? That is radical stuff. Now, 
his, wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet. Now let's stop right there. Sister was kissing his feet. I mean, it's not like she's wearing Jordan. He wore Jordans or anything, right? I mean, we're talking about the shoes that they wore was just soles, which means that everything was exposed to the dirt and the dust and everything. And here she is worshiping the Lord by kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Let's pause right there. So here is this man, and what is he doing? He's making a judgment call. Wait a minute. If Jesus was a prophet, he wouldn't accept this. So therefore, in his mind, judging Jesus. But he's not only judging Jesus. He's judging her. If, if Jesus knew who she was and what she and what she does, there's no way he would allow this. So what was he doing? Basically judging that this woman was, out, was outside of the grace of God. One of the greatest sins the church has committed in the history of humanity is think that we know who God can reach and who God cannot reach. God is able. God is able. God is so able. And Jesus answered him. Let's pause there. Simon is thinking to himself, if Jesus was a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman who does that touch him. He's thinking that. And Jesus answered him. You see the problem there? Can you imagine that kind of issue all the time? I mean, it'd be like troubling being a disciple and having a wrong thought and Jesus answering you. Right? I mean, these people are thinking, and then Jesus says, oh, let me address that thought. Yeah. Can you imagine how nerve-wracking that could be? And he does that often throughout Scripture. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them? will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He kind of says this begrudgingly. Kind of says this with, well, I suppose the one who's forgiven more is going to love more, right? And Jesus is now trying to expose the heart of Simon and also expose the heart of this woman that is anointing Jesus' feet. Now, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. This is one of the greatest statements that got Jesus in trouble. Forgiving sins. Why? Because in forgiving sins, he's doing several things. Number one, he's releasing people from shame and guilt. Number two, he's releasing people from a religious oppression that they lived under. Number three, he's telling people that he's fully God. It's a big deal. That's a big deal. 
those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What an incredible story. And here we have in this woman and in the way that she poured herself out before the Lord an example of what it looks like when we give Jesus that which he is worthy of. Let me tell you what happens. When you begin to walk like this woman and you give Jesus the worship and the adoration that he's worthy of, number one, you will face opposition. You will face opposition. I want you to notice what took place. Several people opposed her. Number one, the Pharisees opposed her and judged her. Said, you're wicked, you're outside of God's grace, basically, this is a wicked one, you, you have no place. I can't believe Jesus is allowing this to happen. This basically tells us who he really is. The Pharisees judged her. Number two, Judas, who was one of the disciples of Jesus in another portion, in another gospel said, looked past his own sins, and he had this self-righteous statement. You ever been around people who have, make self-righteous statements? I know you don't. You've never heard that, or you never made one. But Judas said, oh, can you believe this? What an incredible waste. We could have taken this perfume and given it to the poor while he was stealing from the offering bag. It's interesting. A lot of times people who make self-righteous statements are able to overlook their own sins. I'm going to walk away from that one. And even the disciples, even the disciples considered her giving an extravagant waste. And the Bible says that they were indignant, and that means that they were annoyed and angry because they thought there was better use for that perfume. I want you to think about it. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, getting ready to go to the cross, die from our sins, and rise from the grave. And they couldn't perceive it. And in their mind, this perfume could have been used for something better. When you and I make a commitment to live our lives sold out for Jesus and give our all to Jesus, we are going to find opposition. People will judge your spiritual connection to God because of your gift to God. You begin to live sold out for Jesus, and people are going to begin to judge you. They're going to say, well, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? Why are, you, why, are you, why are you spending so much time at the church? Why are you giving so much? What an incredible waste. You could be doing this, and that people will just plainly oppose you when you begin to follow the will of God. I heard this pastor, Dan Betzer, shared his story. He's a pastor in Fort Myers. His church was going bankrupt. Uh, where, uh, they had at least uh, something to the extent they were expecting to close in three months. And the Lord said, okay, I know you're closing, but I still want you to have a missions banquet and raise funds for missionaries. He said, how am I going to do that when we can't even pay our mortgage, God? You know, he's wrestling, of course, in prayer, believing that the Lord is leading him. He said, God, I can't do that. He said, the Lord says, no, you can, because I'm calling you to do it. But we don't have the resources, but I'm not counting on your resources. I'm like God. <laughs> so, so he decides to have this banquet. The board opposes him and says, you are wrong. This is sinful. I can't believe you're doing this. But he believes that the Lord is calling him to do it. He has this great big missions banquet. That same week, somebody calls him and says, hey, I want to have lunch with you. I want to meet with you. Uh, and, and they have a meeting. And that pastor, uh, Pastor Dan Betzer, meets with this man and says, I can't believe you had a missions banquet with the church in debt the way that it is. And here is Pastor Dan saying, oh, boy. I really want to sit here throughout a lunch hour hearing this person 
correct me on what I believe God really called me to do. And he was just upset. But before he knew it, that man took out his checkbook and said, I believe God called you to do that in faith, and God's calling me to do this in faith. Wrote out a check for $120,000 to help the church get out of debt and staff the church so that they could do the work of the ministry. To this day, that church is still operating, and they've made a commitment before God. They will keep zero dollars in the bank account. Every month, they make sure whatever access they have, they give towards the mission field. They are one of the top giving churches in the nation towards mission work, globally speaking. That's amazing. Isn't that incredible? Everybody wants a faith story like that. (laughs) Everybody likes to hear a faith story like that. The problem is it makes no sense. But when God calls us to walk by faith, oftentimes it's going to make no sense. Sister Kimber, before she went to the mission field, when she was just a young girl in high school, raised $3,000 to buy her car. She's a missionary that we support right now in India. She raised $3,000 to buy her new car, or, or, or her first car. And as she raised that money, she said to herself, uh, she heard something about she can, with that money, create several wells that will provide water for entire peoples and villages in Africa that walk six kilometers to get water. She said, a well for a village or a vehicle. And she gave her $3,000 for wells. It's the kingdom of God. Zach and Danica, who were in Laos, he, text, he sent me a, a Facebook message and said, Carlos, please pray for me. said, my kids are deathly sick, and everybody's telling us that we need to come home to America. They're saying that this is irresponsible, that it's okay for us to take care of our children. Uh, and... Uh, I just believe that the Lord is telling me if you go back to America, that's the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You need to trust me for your healing. I read that message like, whoa. That's powerful. When God calls you to walk by faith, even those who you think will support you, even they sometimes stand to oppose you. I think of people around this church the way that God uses them to surrender their lives for Jesus. I think of Jim Werner, who comes in every Monday, and the volunteer crew, and Tom Ramirez, who come in and take care of the church to make sure that everything looks good so that it could be ready for us to use. They're giving up their time with no pay whatsoever, right? But they're giving it for the sake of the kingdom. Why? Because they believe. They're giving God what he's worthy of. I think of Brother Nick Bailey. Remember when we were sitting down and God said to him, I want you to give up racing for me. And I remember how hard that was when God called him to surrender that for him. That was beautiful. But it was what God called you to do. And the way that God, you have grown since you surrendered that to God, it's incredible. I think of Tim and Chevy, how they moved out of, you know, Bono back into the heart of the east, Toledo, because they felt the Lord called them into that area. I think of Doug and Tina Christensen, who were in Toledo area, and they're here now, but they live in Columbus, and they left everything here in Toledo to go to Columbus to be a part of an inner city church with no promise of anything happening other than doing the ministry and carrying the cross of Jesus Christ. I think of, I think of Greg and Ashley, who two years ago said, Pastor, what if God called, they lived in Columbus, says, what if God called us to the rock? And I said, Not what if God calls you to the rock, is 
When will God call you to the rock? Come on, brothers and sisters, get in tune with Jesus. <laughs> and we begin to engage in conversations and how they walk away from that as God let them. I don't know where you're at in life, but I know this. Why am I sharing this? There's a step of faith that God's calling you to. And it ain't going to be easy. There will be opposition, but it is the hand of God for you. When you believe to live for God and do the things that God calls you to do, you will have opposition. But let me tell you, when you do that, which God called you to do, when you give God what he's worthy of, this too will happen. You will welcome Jesus the way that he deserves to be welcomed. You will welcome the presence of Jesus the way that his presence is deserved to be welcomed. When Jesus went into that home, there was a lot of nonverbal communication. Anybody married in this house? Anybody ever felt like you were, you know, like your wife was telling you something without telling you not anything? You know, it's like it's very thick in the atmosphere. Nothing's been said. It's like, babe, is everything okay? Oh, I'm fine. And you start praying in the name of Jesus. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You start speaking in tongues saying, Lord, deliver me from this hour. Give me the gift of the sermon, because I don't know what's happening. Anybody ever been there, right? It's like, am I so? When she says, nothing. And that means, you better start being a prophet and figuring it out. Because I ain't telling you. I mean, I do a lot of marital counseling. That never happens in my home. I'm just from, you know, from talking to others. <laughs> There's a lot of nonverbal communication that was taking place in that, in, as Jesus came in. In that culture, when people are welcomed into a home for dinner, you give them water for their feet because their feet's been dirty from walking on the ground. You, you kiss them because it's a typical welcome. Men will kiss men on the cheek to say, I welcome you into my home. We're brothers. We're having communion. And then you would anoint their head with oil, right? In other words, you're saying you're welcomed. This is your home. We, you are received. When Jesus came in, everybody was welcome, but Jesus got no water for his feet. Jesus got no anointing in his head, and he wasn't greeted with a kiss. And everybody in the house said, oh, snap. Something happened in here. I mean, you ever been in a meeting or in a classroom where somebody came in and you knew that there was awkwardness, but nothing has been said? That's exactly what's happening here. And while Simon was disrespecting Jesus or being defiant towards Jesus, there was a woman who lived on the street who heard that the Messiah was going to be in that place. And God got a hold of her heart. And she took everything that she had, bought this oil, and went into that home and poured out her worship to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible to look at it that way? Could you imagine what God was thinking? <laughs> I could see God in the throne just looking down. It's like, I'm about to mess with Simon. <laughs> Wait till you see how the disciples are going to react to this, right? And she blesses Jesus. Now, what does it mean? She took down her hair, intimacy, and also, he is my master. It is a symbol of, I am his bondservant. And now, all the nonverbal communication was positive, not from Simon, but from this woman who comes in, and she is blessing Jesus, when you give Jesus what he's worthy of, when you say, Lord, you are the Lord of my time. Lord, you are the Lord of my life. 
Lord, you are the Lord of my resources. You will welcome Jesus in a way that he is worthy. And when you welcome Jesus in a way that he's worthy, forgiveness is released, his presence fills the room, and miracles happen. I want you to notice there, she poured out her worship to Jesus, and Jesus released forgiveness. It was beautiful, which it's something to take note of. God's forgiveness, his power to reconcile, to bring people to him, is tied to our worship of him. Second, his presence must have filled that room. Imagine now the difference in the atmosphere when this woman began to worship Jesus this way. Can you imagine that something changed in the atmosphere? And now people are looking at Jesus for who he is. It's beautiful. I believe that God is omnipresent, and that means that I believe that God is everywhere at the same time. I believe that God is in every crack house. I believe that God is in every place where there's domestic violence. I believe that God is in every place where there's pain and suffering. I do believe that. But I don't believe that just because he's everywhere that his presence is invited or that he's free to move as he wants to move. I believe what God requires is a people who will say, I will go and I will break alabaster in that place, in that city, in that street so that your presence will be released and there will be forgiveness and miracles and reconciliation. Let me explain what I mean. I believe that there's great darkness and great pain and great suffering. And I believe that God is waiting for a man and a woman who says this, I will go. I don't care what darkness you call me to, God. I don't care what suffering you call me to. I don't care what country you call me to. I don't care what part of the city you call me to, but I will go. You show me where I need to worship you and bless you, and I will park there so that your presence will be released and change everything from the inside out. Maybe that place is a softball field. Maybe, maybe that place is your workplace. Maybe that place is your school. But I believe that God is waiting for believers to walk up in a room with alabaster oil. What does that mean? With an attitude that says, Jesus, I'm here to worship you. And if there's an opportunity for, share, for me to share the good news with someone, I'm available. I'm ready to give you the, wor the worship that you're worthy of. Anybody with me today? I believe that when we welcome him, when we worship him this way and welcome him, that miracles happen. One of my, one, of, one great teacher that I had at Southeastern was Marlene Milner. She was in charge of the social work department, and she was a skeptic like me, like me, so I respected her opinion. We didn't just receive everything that was supernatural. We felt like it was very important to discern. And there was a revival that took place in Lakeland many years ago, and I was interested in knowing what that was about. I had my speculations, and so did she. I happened to go back to Florida to Southeastern University recruiting students for an internship, and I talked to Ms. Milner, and I said, Ms. Milner, I want to talk about this revival that's happening in Lakeland. I'm kind of skeptical about what's happening. And she said, I am too, but I got to tell you what happened. Okay, I'm ready. says, I went very skeptical, skeptical uh, to one of these meetings, and I just began to worship God there. And I got to tell you, I've had migraine headaches all my life. I went to that meeting, and I haven't had a migraine headache since. I said, really? It's like, yeah, I'm telling you, I am healed. I've not had another migraine headache since that day. She says, but I am not saying that everything, things weren't messy or that things weren't weird. I'm not saying that. 
But this is, after thinking about this for a while, this is the only thing that I can get my, ho- my hands on, and it's this. Where the people of God get together and they're hungry for his presence, God moves. Did you hear? I'm going to repeat that, and I expect you to match excitement that came from this room. <laughs> there was some excitement in this room. I want you to match it with me, okay? When the people of God get together, and they're hungry for his presence, God moves. Come on. Come on. (laughs) It's the truth. It releases his presence. Would you stand with me? We'll close with this. It's very interesting. You can take, if you could take this pulpit from me. It's very interesting that Mary... Or the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, John just says that she is Mary Magdalene, sister of Martha. What else was Mary doing that she got talked to about? It's another portion of Scripture where Mary was laying at Jesus' feet while Martha was doing the work. And Martha said, Lord, aren't you going to talk to my sister? I'm doing all this work. Was she good for nothing sitting right there? <laughs> That's right. That's a little exaggeration. She says, aren't you going to talk to my sister? I'm doing all the work, and she's just laying at your feet. And what did Jesus say? Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the greater thing. So here are two instances. Martha laying at the feet of Jesus, abiding there. And what does Jesus say? She's doing the greater thing. And then the second instance, she anoints his feet with oil. And Jesus said that what she's done today will always be remembered. I find it incredible that the person who is most in tune with Jesus Christ was a woman who was known for her sin living. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't any of them. It wasn't the religious establishment. It wasn't even John the Baptist. It was a woman who was possibly living as a prostitute who knew that Jesus was the Lord and Savior. And God revealed to her something, and she lived in a greater understanding of who Jesus was and the very disciples who did day and night with Jesus. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. And Jesus ended her story this way. He says, leave her alone. Let her anoint my feet because she is preparing me for my burial. She's preparing me for my death. Those who give make way. Those who give Jesus what he's worthy of Make way for the greater gift. I want you to think about that. Mary was used by God to basically usher in the rest of God's plan. What was that? To die on the cross for your sins so that you can receive mercy, so that you can receive grace, forgiveness, and restoration. She's a part of that salvation story. She was used by God to be a part of God's great plan. What a beautiful story. And if we make a decision to give our life, to give our time, to give our resources to God, we're going to be a part of a greater story. And we're going to be a part of releasing a greater gift bigger than us. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for being with us today. Thank you for opening up our eyes to who you are. I thank you for your anointing for today. Thank you for breaking the yokes, oh God. Thank you for giving us life. Hallelujah. Lord, we say we want to be like Mary. 
We don't want to have a defiant attitude towards you. We want to say yes to your will. Hallelujah. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as you're here today, you're saying, you know what, Pastor? I believe that the Lord is calling me to walk by faith, but it's not logical. And I've been holding on to logical when the Lord is telling me, you know, you need to trust me and walk by faith in this. Maybe there's something that God wants you to do with your life or your time or your resources. I don't know, and I'm not lifting another offering. I'm not interested. But you know that God is calling you at this point to walk by faith. And that means that there's something you got to give up. you got to give it, put it in the hands of Jesus. Right where you're at, would you raise your hand if that's you? Saying, you know what, I, I know the Lord is calling me to walk by faith. There's a step of faith God's calling me to make. And I have to stop depending on my own strength and on my own thinking, and i got to trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm raising my hands with my brother and my sister because I know that there are things you're calling me to walk by faith in. And as I stand before you, God, I say I surrender. As we stand before you, God, we say we surrender. And we pray, Holy Spirit, would you teach us, teach us how to walk by faith, how to trust you in the midst of opposition, how to trust you and welcome you, God, the way that you're worthy of. Lord, we say yes to you. We say yes to you. Now, if the altar workers can join me here at the altar, I'd like to welcome you at this time. If the altar workers, those who pray and those who I call to pray, maybe you're not an altar worker, but I'm constantly calling your name to pray, would you come up to the altar and help me pray? Amen. And Brother Greg, I'll try to give you an out by not calling your name, but here we go. <laughs> Nick, I'd like to help if you could help me. Maybe you're here today and you're realizing that you're more like Simon than you are like Mary. Simon was the owner of that home that didn't really invite Jesus. Kind of had a defiant attitude towards Jesus. He didn't receive Jesus for who he was. Really, I think Simon is like the religious person. You know, coming to church by and by, doing the things that we're supposed to do. But we know that in our hearts, we're far from Him. We're far from having the kind of posture that says, I need the Lord. I need to worship Him. Maybe you're here, or you're not a part of the church or the religious establishment, but you know that your heart has been in a place that's been far from the Lord. And today you're saying, I bring my heart to Jesus. I bring my heart to Jesus. Church, listen to me. I know that I've been serving the Lord most of my life now. And I know what it is to be in the church and be lost in the church. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, my heart posture needs to be right before the Lord. If that's you, we'd love to pray with you. Would you come up to the altar right now? Let's just say before the Lord, Lord, I respond to you. I want my heart posture to be right before you. I want to be like Mary. I want to worship you and give you the worship that you deserve. 
I don't want to do all the right things and yet know in my heart that I'm far from you. Maybe you're saying, I don't, I don't want to live my life far from your presence. So I know that the way that I'm living is not welcoming you in my home. I say that I know you and that I welcome you, but my home does not reflect that you're welcomed by me. If that's you, would you come to the altar right now? We'd love to pray with you. we love to pray with you. The altars are open. Amen. Well, let me pray for you, church, as I release. If you would raise your hand, if you can, if you're able, if you're willing. May your life be like alabaster poured out for Jesus. May your life reflect a person who sold out to the Lord. Given him completely what he's worthy of. May God's grace and love reach you that you would know his forgiveness, that you would know his presence, that you would know his miracle power alive in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And God bless you, church. Thank you. The altars are open. We'd love to pray with you if you're, wel- you're welcome to come up.